everyone, and welcome to another Scotswahey podcast. And today I'm joined by writer Ian Maloney and his publishers Angela and Paul Doherty from Liminal Inc. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Ali. So we're here to talk about the publication of Ian's novella, Life is Elsewhere, Burn Your Flags. But we also want to talk about Liminal Inc. Uh, as a new publisher, because I think that's interesting as well. But first of all, Ian, why did you decide to write this book and why in this form? Um, why did I decide? That's that's a difficult question to start with, Ali. Um, in part, so that it's about... It's about um, two characters, a married couple, um, Cormac and Eddie, who, who live in Japan. Cormac's from Ireland and, and Eddie's Japanese. And these are characters I, I came up with in about 2015 um, for a completely different book I was going to write um, that went nowhere. Um, right. it, was, it was a pretty bad book and I, I tried and tried and tried and it didn't go anywhere. So I wrote something else instead. Um, but last year 2020 we're you know we're locked down and um my lockdown wasn't all that bad i live in the middle of nowhere in japan um so it was more of an inconvenience than anything else but i was reading a lot about um other people's experiences and experiences around the world and um, you know my sister lives in the center of london so that's a whole different kind of lockdown experience and um i've got friends back home who are social workers psychologists and they were telling me about you know the, the sort of really horrible side of some people's lockdown experience and it got me sort of really thinking about it and at that point these two characters um eddie and cormac sort of jumped back into my head and i was like oh th those two had a a pretty bad marriage um th that was always going to be part of the story as their marriage was falling apart so i wonder i wonder how they're getting on in lockdown they're they're probably not doing too well and that sort of sparked everything that, that became this novella. Why this, this form, why a novella, is more just, I, I got to the point of sort of where the book stops now and thought, no, that's it. That's me done. I don't want to tell any more of this story. Obviously, you know, like all stories, it continues beyond the, the final page, but... I liked it. I, I mean, I love the novella form anyway. I think it's a great form, and it's it's a shame more publishers don't um, publish them. They, they should. Novellas are amazing, but I got to that point of just like, yeah, I could go on, see what happens next, see where this marriage goes, see what happens in lockdown. But it's like, no, let's let's just leave it. Let's uh, drop back out of their lives, and maybe I'll come back to them in the future in in another way. But yeah, that's why. That's very interesting because I think they're both cracking characters. And one of my questions here is, will we see them in something else? Because they, they do seem to be um, really well-rounded. Uh, you know, it's interesting that they've been with you for a while because it perhaps feels that way. Yeah, I mean, so when I write a novel, um, I do a lot of sort of background preparation work. And this is one of my things that one of my um, hobby horses um, is the idea that I don't really believe writer's block exists. I believe if, if you've done the requisite preparation, <laughs> then you're not blocked. If you're sitting down in front of a blank sheet of paper going, ha, oh, what will I write today? And starting from that point, then of course you're, 
going to be blocked. You're not going to write anything. But I write down at the point of, right, I know what I'm doing today. I've got these characters. So I did all that work for this novel I was going to write in 2015. I did the backstory. I knew who their parents were and who their um, siblings were and what their jobs were and what kind of music they liked. And all the things that you need to have a rounded character, but doesn't always get into the story. I had all that stuff there. So when I sat down to write them, it was it was just ready to go. It was all all already in there. So um, Paul and Angela, why did Liminal Link want to publish this book, and how did you guys come together? You know, how did it all work? Mm. Well, yeah, uh, we we worked with Ian before because he, he worked on your book, didn't he? Yeah, way that back. was yeah. way back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I for me it's because I already enjoyed his writing anyway. But um, when when the book came to us, we were kind of not sure where we were going, whether we were going to carry on with the link. It had been a, something that we had started during lockdown, and we weren't sure what we were going to do with it. It'd been a creative project, and there was something about for me. There's something about I love novellas. I love short stories. There's something about that amazing energy that you get in, in a short form that you get brought into something and you get taken out of it and you're left with your imagination to fill in the gaps. And I love that. But what I particularly enjoyed about Ian's book is the energy that he captures around, well, for me, I suppose it resonates more with the female character because of her age and um, the and her, you know, I'm not giving very much away because I don't want to, because I think everybody should read it. But, um, but also the kind of looking back at a past that she no longer, and, and that idea of no longer recognizing yourself. And I think he perfectly captures that. And that, and, but, but also the contrast then with the other character Cormac, um, because it's told in two parts, um, there was something about the way they kind of, they don't complement each other, they kind of contrast with each other. They sort of rub against each other, but in a way that I find really engaging. So for we'd, we'd always said, hadn't we, that, if we were going to publish another book, it would have to wow us because we wanted to absolutely, I, I'm sure that publishers believe, absolutely believe in their books, but you know that I really, really wanted it to, to be something that we could quite confidently say, we're publishing this because we absolutely love it and we want everybody to read it. And we had been asked about another couple of ones and it just didn't have the same resonance for me. I would have found it more difficult to be enthusiastic about it in the same way but I just find it easier to be enthusiastic about it and it's fun yeah, um, yeah. and when Ian came to us at first we were a little cagey <laughs> <laughs> because you know not having read it we're thinking well we don't know so uh, he kindly uh, said well I'll send you something over and, and read it so we we both read it independently and didn't say anything to each other until we'd both read it and then we're like so what did you think <laughs> and we were going I think it's great absolutely love it and we both felt the same way so so uh, that that was really nice and then it's been lovely working with Ian in that sense. So in terms of the thought process you had it wasn't like you were looking necessarily for another book to publish it was like it had to be it was something you were considering but it had to be the right book. Yeah. Yes yeah absolutely right I mean we we've got uh, you know quite a few other projects on the go including you know other, other work that we do, uh, as many creative people do. Uh, so it's something that I think we'd always wanted to get deeper into, but haven't experienced a bit of uh, the sort of commitment that was needed for that and the, the technological prowess that was required as well. 
uh, and in the publishing side of things, uh, that that was quite a steep learning curve for us. So we, we needed to have the right project to work on to justify us spending that much time and energy uh, on it. Okay, and Ian, from your point of view, then how did this relationship come around? I didn't. I think I did realise that you'd worked with Angela before, but what was that relationship, and then how did that develop? Um, well, it started off. Um, yeah, I was editor for um, Angela's memoir, um, so that that's how we met and how yeah. how we got working together. And then once that process was complete, we we stayed in touch and. Um, and um, when her book came out, obviously get get involved and you know you promote your friends' books and, and share it around. And um, I was aware they they'd set up um, Liminal Inc. Um, and was kind of curious to know what their plans were because um, I, I'm a big fan of small presses. I like I like big presses and I like small presses. Um, I I ha I am a fan of of these kind of small indie. Um, sort of very hands-on um, presses that Scotland is really good at. We've got a lot of them springing up. And um, this novella felt sort of perfect to be matched with that kind of, that kind of energy, that kind of environment. You know, it's um, one of the themes in the book is that sort of punk DIY mm -hmm. ethic that, that um, Eddie, one of the characters, is, is trying to get back to. And that's very much kind of what this project was. It was um, matching the, the text with the, the right publisher, which um, doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes big publishers have their own agendas and um, every publisher has their own tastes and directions. But this was just kind of a perfect match of, of we all sort of were already traveling in the same direction. I, and, 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 you know, you mentioned earlier on that maybe novellas don't get published as much as they perhaps should and perhaps that, you know, a bigger publisher might, might you know, not have, have even taken a look at it because sometimes they do these things by formats and trends and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I knew if I, if I submitted this to, to some, some publishers, the first thing they'd have said, and people did say this to me, I, I didn't submit it anywhere else, but other people since have said, like, oh, you should turn this into a novel. You should, you know, write the rest of it. It's like, no, that's that's not the point. Like, yes, I could turn it into a novel, but no, I want it. I want it to stay like this, and that's the joy of, of being with Liminal Inc. Is we could all just work together and go right. This is the image, and it doesn't have to fit a marketing plan. It doesn't have to fit specific budgetary requirements. It's just this is the perfect form and the perfect vehicle for this particular story. So, for you, it's really a case of the right publisher for the right book rather than saying, you know, some people have their publisher and stick with it no matter what, although I think that's happening less and less. I think people are, you know, moving around the place. I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, Corona's messed everything up. It's messed up the, the industry completely. You know, there's, there's less money going around. Um, editors, basically everybody working for for publishers has been furloughed or they're on reduced hours and things like that so there's just not um the same same number of books being published um and the same it it was already quite a risk averse industry and the last mm -hmm. 18 months has made it even more so um which is a shame but there's also the technology you know you're getting the news recently is full of you know, Salman Rushdie and Chuck Palahniuk are going on Substack, and there's all these all these options coming up. And um, 
you know, don't get me wrong, if uh, Random House or Faber or whoever came along with a nice pub, big publishing deal, I'd, I'd jump at it. But um, they also would probably go, yeah, no, turn this into a novel. You know, there's, there's times, <laughs> I, I always come back to music, there's times when you want to be on an indie record label and there's times mm-hmm. you want to be on a, on a big record label and this is very much the right time to be on, a, on an indie. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, going back to uh, uh, Angela and, and Paul, uh, whether this was um, the COVID side of things, doing this at this time, uh, was that something that you linked into, not just in the novel, but actually uh, the, the time you were going to put this out? As Ian says, we've been locked down, but there's actually tech, technology is allowing you to do things that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to, if this had happened 10 years ago then, you know, I would imagine even what we're doing now, we wouldn't have been able to do, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So was that something that you um, thought, this is not just the right book for us, but it's the right time for us to do it? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I, you know, I would, I would kind of say yes and no <laughs> to that. Uh, no, because I, I think the book uh, deals with uh, some concepts that are just so timeless, you know, uh, relationships that are struggling, people who are not sure how they got to where they've got to and, you know, looking perhaps to the past to try to unravel where they're actually going. So uh, that's that's the sort of timeless aspect of it that could be in a book that has yeah. been released any time in the last hundred years, I suppose, on the next hundred years. Uh, but uh, for us, yeah, I, th- I think because lockdown generally had a lot of people asking themselves questions as to what was important in life and where they were going with that. Uh, that from that point of view and the, and the fact that COVID, uh, you know, the book is set, you know, on, on Christmas Day 2020, right in the middle of, of, of uh, this experience we're going through. So in that sense, it was a good time for it. But the, the concepts are universal and time, timeless. I think, that- um, sorry. I was going to say, I think, I know you said that kind of technology wise, I think that that probably from that perspective and the fact that Ian's in Japan and we're here. And um, I think that probably had an impact in the sense that, like Paul said, it makes you think about um, reevaluate your own life, but it also makes you think of possibilities to try and be outside of what would be the traditional way of doing things possibly or making connections um, in other ways. And I think that COVID kind of, like you said, opened up a much more about, I think people have become much more kind of responsive to this kind of thing that we're doing now, you know, the whole kind of um, speaking on online and stuff. And that made the possibility of working with somebody in a different country, both interesting and exciting because it meant that it, we, I mean, we've had meetings where, you know, we've gotten up early so that we can speak to Ian and, and Ian's been there later. And, and we don't, most of our com- communication has been done via email in the traditional sense, but it does allow us that opportunity to be able to, it's nice to speak face to face, you know, um, Ian had been my editor, but we'd actually not spoken to each other face to face until this project, which we've spoken to each other a lot by email, but, and it was, it's actually really nice, you know, to kind of like be able to speak to someone and know, then you can kind of envisage the conversation, when you had to play, doing the whole email thing, you can picture their face and it feels more, you know, like you're having a conversation rather than just, and I think from that point of view, the time was right in the sense of, you know, it's kind of opened up, it's made people more amenable to those kind of things. And certainly we've got some ideas for working with further promotion that we're doing sort of rolling out, which is kind of exploring sort of, you know, people and things and how we communicate with people, so. Yeah, because that's the other point, isn't it? There's a different way 
of promoting books now mm. you know, than there was even I mean when even when you started you know there wasn't wasn't as many launches or things like that even but you know the the, the ways of, of of promoting your book has changed greatly yeah I mean with my first book in 2014 I had to get on a plane and yeah, and come back to Scotland to promote it. There was there was really no other way. Um, but you know, with without the technology we have, and you know things like um, Zoom and and all these apps, my entire writing career wouldn't exist. You know, my first book was twenty fourteen. It's I've been in Japan the entire time, but publishing primarily in in the UK. So, yeah, from that point of view, it, it kind of has to be this time. I couldn't have. I couldn't have had this career 20 years ago, you know, posting yeah. manuscripts from Japan to, to <laughs> Edinburgh and waiting for the return post. You know, it sounds romantic, but it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> but this is what I love about the book in itself. There's so many things in it that kind of chime with the times. Um, mm. When I started reading it, and I don't, I'm very wary of spoilers as well, so I'm not going to give anything away, but you have this thing of getting out the house getting, uh, you know, being allowed out for a bit and taking in, I mean, I remember when lockdown first started, certainly in Glasgow, you would go out for your designated walk and there was no traffic and you could hear the birds. And there's that sense of getting back to nature in, a, in the kind of first part of the book as well. And so that made me think about, because we're working with this global pandemic, um, if that's not a tautology, but that uh, so to hear how it maybe was somewhere else and to see the differences, but also more importantly to see the the, the similarities, I think was quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because the the way the lockdowns developed in Japan has been very, very different to how, how it was in, in Britain. Um, as I've been watching from afar, you know, the, the government here has been much more hands up. We haven't had official lockdowns. We've had states of emergency, which right. are, please don't go outside if at all avoidable, but please also go and spend money in the local businesses so they don't go out. And if you do have to go outside, then well, wear a mask. Like there's, there's no fines or punishments or anything, you know, in, in Japan, they were shown on TV, you know, um, pictures from Britain of, you know, police stopping people in the parks and sending them home. And it's like, yeah, well, why, why are we not doing that here? That, that looks eminently sensible considering what's going on. Um, so that was always kind of weirdly in my head when I was writing that is that my experience of lockdown is different from a lot of people in Japan because I'm out in the countryside. But it's also this book's being published initially in the UK. So my experience and Cormac and Eddie's experience is very different from the experience most of the readers will have of it. Um, and yeah, I kind of had to keep that in mind and not just assume levels of knowledge and levels of experience. And um, I quite like that. I quite like writing under those sort of strictures, especially in a novella form, it makes you focus much more on on what is universal rather than what is specific. Mm. With that in mind, writing in the form, do you feel it does focus you in that sense? You know, you've got this thing that I've got to be um, very precise with what I'm writing rather than 
off on, for want of a better word, flight of fancy. I know that's not something that you would think of, but you know what I mean, that you, you uh, excessive description or anything like that. It does. I mean, I, I love the novel form. I'm, not, I'm a novelist, first and foremost, and I love the novel because it's, um, is that a bag team quote? It's called a, a baggy monster. It's, um, you, you have all this space and you have all this freedom to go on tangents, to go in different directions, to go on flights of fantasy. You know, the, the original novels, Cervantes and all these kind of early things were literally flights of, of fan- fantasy, flights of fantasy in that way. And I love that. But the, the novella form is kind of it's kind of the best of both worlds between that and, the, and really tight structures of a short story where you mm-hmm. sort of get in and get out. It's, it's sort of the best of both worlds that you get much more focused. Um, and as Angela said earlier that, earlier, that makes the energy much more packed. It makes it much tighter. But there's still the scope. You still get the sense of there being way more beyond the edge of the stage. Um, and certainly for me, that's, that's kind of the perfect area to be writing in. I think, I think what's lovely, again, um, is that you have got these characters who, in the space of, of, of um, in the novella, you care about. And, you know, that's quite difficult to do. I think, you know, when you're in a novel, you can do that because, you know, you've got backstory and you've got all these things. And you, as you say, you have the backstory, but you're just not showing it here you're just kind of letting people find what they want but you do at the end I mean I was left kind of wanting I was one of those people that was left wanting more um but I could completely understand uh, uh why that was um going back to the idea of the process between you I'm really interested in how that worked because we said this is a way that you can work that you previously couldn't so how did it work when you decided that you were going to, uh, you know, you get the manuscript or, or, or the text and you think, yeah, I'd like to publish this as kind of second time publishers. Is this right? Is this after Angel's book? Is this the second one? Yeah. Effectively, yeah. yeah so how did you go about it? Practically. <laughs> well, practically, okay. Well, yeah, Ian sent us a manuscript. We read it. <laughs> we, we discussed what we felt about it. We go back to Ian and... Uh, and then we entered a, a little period, if I remember right, where we bounced a few ideas back and forward about uh, m- maybe some suggestions. No, I, w- I wouldn't really say it was an editorial sort of process, but uh, Angela's much better at this stuff than, than I am having, you know, Angela's edited a few things. So I, I know there was an exchange of ideas uh, between us and, and Ian back and forward. And through that process, I think we, we got to know a, a lot more about what Ian wanted from the book and, and how he saw it and what was important in it and so that, that was really helpful. So uh, I guess at that point we settled on a, on a final version. Uh, Ian also had other editors involved in that I believe. He can tell you more about that. Uh, and then once we had the final version of the text then it was a matter of us working on the whole process of getting that done which for us was a very steep learning curve technologically as, as, as I explained to you uh, having been you know involved in books before um, Angela decided she would typeset this one which meant having to learn how to typeset <laughs> uh, and that's that was quite quite challenging but I think you enjoyed it and did, did a great yeah. job and she got a great creative eye for that uh, and uh, I took on the role of, of having a go at the cover design as well which uh, I was very keen to to learn how to do and have a go at and and I really enjoyed it and 
through that process, we come up with ideas and we sent those back and forward as well with Ian and, and just discussed what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. Uh, that took a long bit of time. Uh, and, and that's, that's I, mean, I guess that's the technical aspects of how it worked practically. Yeah, no, you make it sound very uh, simple there. Now I've done that as well. I have to say that learning how to typeset is, for me, was like the most frustrating game of Tetris. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> oh, that's full stops popped in there, and I don't want to do it. So I totally sympathize with you. But I mean, then you've got things like, you know, what font you want to do it with. Um, yeah. you want. I mean, there are lots of practical things that for you guys doing it so early on is it's a difficult thing to, to you know, and I presume that you use kind of Ian's uh, expertise and, 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 you know, in, in that. Yeah. Yeah, we went backwards and forwards a lot. I mean, the, the reason that I like it a lot is that right at the start when we first spoke to Ian, what we said to him was, is we love the book, but what we're not really interested in is sort of taking it and just, we decide what to do or you do. It has to be a collaboration between all of us because we were very, and collaboration was the really important word because we were very, very keen that it was a project that we all bought into at every stage. So every stage was discussed. And it sounds, I think we got lucky with Ian in the sense that we got lucky in the sense that he were, we weren't miles away in our thinking on anything. And, yeah. and, and I don't just mean around publishing, I mean, in general, we're not miles away from our thinking. So it meant that we had, we had already got that base and maybe it would have been more difficult if there was somebody that was more awkward or just more diff, you know, had much more opposed views to us or something. None of those were the case, you know? So, so I think that from that point of view, we, we got really lucky. And, but I also think that what was nice is that everything was up for discussion everything was up for discussion so and if if we, so if i said to ian do you, I, I would send him say i think i sent him five different examples of fonts and said any of these do you, do you like any of these and he said yeah i like that one and as it happened it also was the one that i liked which made it you know but but he, he did what he didn't say was you know actually no i can't i don't really like these and i haven't you know and he was very particular it was more that we were just all ready to sort of pitch in and just Think about these things, and, and I the, love that process. Yeah, 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 it was a very easy, easy process, but also that you cared about it. You know, yes, it wasn't like, well, yeah. I don't care. You decide. You know, it, you, you was you were quite happy to get involved with the discussions, and it was great. Yeah, I mean, from a, from a writer's point of view, what usually happens is you hand over the manuscript, your editor comes back, you go back and forth, and then that's it. It sort of disappears into the system, and then a couple months later, or whenever you'll get back, here's your cover. What do you think? And you're like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> And that, you know, you're sort of outside of the process for a lot of it. So the one of the real joys of this process was being part of the team. There's just the three of us. There's yeah. kind of nobody else. Um, you know, that we brought in a few people to like proofread and things like that. But basically, it was the three of us looking at cover designs and font and typeset mm. and and all that side of things, which, as I say, from a writer's point of view, is great. But I've also got experience of, of working for publishers and being an editor and, and being yeah. on that side of things. So I was kind of aware of, of what would be coming up as well and what kind of things. Like one of the things you really learn, um, this is my sixth book. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things you learn in the process is what to care about and what not to care about. Like mm. when, when to go, no, this is important and I want this done this way. And everything else is, I want it done well, but like, I am never going to die on the hill of fonts. Right. <laughs> Unless it's like Comic Sans or something. Yeah, yeah. If it's in Garamond or if it's Times New Roman, I'm like, no, oh, it looks good. I'm fine with that. But there are other things like covers I get. If, if there's a cover I 
there was no problem with this. This was fantastic. But I've had in the past the discussions of, right, I don't want this and I don't want this and I don't want this because that's the, you know, those are the huge cliches for particularly books set in Japan or um, like my first book was set in, was RAF pilots in the Second World War. And it was like, right, can we not have a sepia spitfire on the cover? Because that's <laughs> the most obvious thing to put in the cover. Um, so yeah, it was, as they say, it was just a real collaboration where we were all more or less on the same page. And when we, I think when we weren't on the same page, it was the thing that only one of us actually cared that much about and everyone else was like, yeah, fine, if that's what you want, let's go with yeah. that. Because that's what I think things happen. Because having three voices in the room, so to speak, just seems to me so much better than often having 10 voices in the room, which I've been in. And as you say, there's a there's six covers to choose from and and you know you start to think oh just pick one you know which is not the right attitude <laughs> at all and i have to say for people watching the video version here is the cover and it is it's absolutely uh, uh, gorgeous it's the wrong way around but i can flip that when we put the video out and this was paul you're doing yes it was it's actually the 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 simplest version of a, of a cover that we did, there was, there was uh, three or four different versions, some of which were a lot more elaborate. Uh, and actually, uh, I think we all agreed that that was the best, the best way to go. So then we tweaked it from there, uh, from, from the basic mock-up. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's great work. It is, absolutely. It is. And it, it, yeah, it's a lovely thing. And I think when you get a book, that's a lovely thing. I think sometimes some people overlook the the um, impact of that, but when you get something like that in your hand, which you're really keen to open up, it's uh, it's uh, it's the best when books are at their best. So I wanted to talk a little bit about again. I wonder if this is affected by COVID and and, and lockdown and everything. But music plays a big part in the book, and uh, but kind of so does nostalgia. There's a lot of looking back, and I wonder if. Ian, if you felt that was something that was heightened by uh, by lockdown, you know, this idea that, well, is this the world coming to an end or whatever you thought at the time and looking back kind of gave comfort because it kind of did for me, I think. I think so, yeah. I mean, if you're stuck inside, you know, you, you dive back into your into your LPs or your CDs or whatever and, you know, fill your time that way. Um, but I think it's more, um, I'm... I'm 41. I, t I turned 40 during sort of during lockdown, and the characters in the book are are that age as well. I think it's more, it's more like a Gen X midlife crisis book than a a lockdown book in terms of that side side of things, the nostalgia. Um, so there's there's the two characters, Eddie and Cormac, and one of them is really looking back into their past and um trying to sort of work out where they went wrong along the way, and the other one's really thinking about the future and yeah. what's going to happen next and um so that that interplay of of the nostalgia for the past against fear for the future was was a big part of the book um so yeah i, th I think that side of things the music particularly came more out of the um the sort of that nick hornby thing of i'm turning 40 i've got to go and listen to all my old records again and i've got <laughs> to get in touch with all my ex-girlfriends again and that that kind of thing so uh yeah. Do you think that that maybe that kind of theme might have happened anyway? Because I just wondered whether, because it did seem to me that a lot of people were going back to movies or back to you know albums or things like that, almost as a sense of comfort. 
I think, yeah, there is that around, but it's also pop culture these days is incredibly nostalgic. I mean, the, the people that are financing things, the people that are um, commissioning things are sort of people that are nostalgic about the past. I mean, the, the biggest movie franchise in the world is Marvel Comics. You know, this, this is people who read this stuff as kids and watched cartoons and things as kids, and now they're adults and have the power, are making their nostalgia into business it's it's mm-hmm. everywhere you know all the you go on netflix and there's the you know the movies that made us and the games that made us the toys that made all, all these kind of things it's sort of it's in the air anyway i think and um yeah you know i'm, I'm a huge fan of 90s music and i i think it's a shame the 90s ever ended so i'm, I'm always going to be nostalgic for that kind of pop culture that that was the line that got me and was oh i wish the, the 90s had never ended <laughs> I mean, fa- fashion-wise, they never have for me. <laughs> I, th- I think one of the characters in the book is looking back, not for comfort though, but for uh, an, an antidote to the comfort, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, back at the time when things were raw, raw, more raw. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, without giving anything away, you have these two stories. For you, Ian, how did they relate to each other? Um, past the characters yeah that's that's a really interesting question i mean there's that they're mirroring in some ways in that as i say you know cormac's looking into the future and aries aries looking into the past but they are as angela said earlier they're you know they don't as a married couple they don't really complement each other they, they sort of contradict each other and rub against each other so that sort of their stories the story from one level is about their marriage but very little of what either of them think about. And it, the majority of the book is inside Cormac's head and then inside yeah. Eddie's head. They think about each other remarkably little yeah. throughout it all. They're, they're thinking about other things outside the marriage. Um, so, yeah, it's almost like if I was ever to, to visualize it, draw a picture you know, of it, it's almost like they're standing back to back, looking out, and they're together, but they're, they're facing away from yeah. each other the whole time. Um, and I wrote it, I wrote it in a really fast burst, or I drafted it, I should say. Um, I'm going to get caught up in this Kerouac thing of, I wrote it really quickly. I didn't, I drafted it really quickly. So Cormac, I wrote Cormac's past part first, and that was really fresh in my head as I was writing Eddie's part. So it automatically sort of fed back into itself and kept going back through. So yeah, there we one of the initial ideas um, we were kicking around was the idea of having some of them published with um, Cormac's story first and then Eddie's, and then having other editions published with Eddie's story first uh-huh. and then Cormac's, and sort of doing that Ali Smith thing. Um, and I think logistically it was just going to be a bit too much work, <laughs> a bit of a nightmare. But yeah, they, they could be seen one way or the other they're mirror images so that is one of the things i really loved about it was they can stand alone you could read both alone but actually you get so much more when you read them together when you bring them together um what about uh, you guys about in terms of the nostalgia aspect of the book was that something that chimed with you or or not uh, yeah certainly yeah some aspects of it there was so much in it that that resonated with me uh, uh, the idea that uh, Cormac's thinking back on you know friendships that he had, and uh, and you know what a different person you, you might have been in the past. Uh, that was that was quite interesting. 
to me, uh, and, and uh, I could feel that. But also, uh, from Eddie's point of view, thinking back to a life, you know, on the road with a band and stuff, which is something that I've done. And uh, yeah, I do think about that now and again, less and less as I get on. <laughs> and more, <only> with, <laughs> more often with a sort of, oh, glad I'm not out in the road somewhere on a night like this. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I can understand that, that once you've sort of tasted that part of life, uh, it's something that is so very special and so very impactful that uh, it's, it's, it's always going to be there, you know, in, in the background to, to your thoughts. Yeah, I, although I think for me, it was more a struggle with how you are now, that kind of idea of, you know, not of coming to terms with the fact that you're not that person that you were before. That's the bit that really resonated for me. Um, I thought that, so it wasn't so much a nostalgia, but more a kind of a, a, a trying to come to terms with something, you know, um, and um, that could be for various reasons in my own life. But I think that that was the thing that really, when I read that part, I was just thinking, wow, this is just like what this is exactly how I would try and describe it you know and um and so yeah I think that and also that sense of um and like longing for freedom and thinking that you're confined somehow and somehow that being reflected in the pandemic and the kind of like idea that we're sort of only free up to a point and then not and I quite liked all that play of around that kind of thing as well so um yeah they were so well, yeah. I, th I think it's one of the things that makes it a kind of perfect book for this time is because mm. to me, um, the, the, the idea of being locked down, it gave us our kind of headspace maybe to reflect on all of those things that you've mentioned. And I think the book uh, uh, absolutely taps into that. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I do think it's a fantastic book. Oh, thanks, thank Alan. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. And uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>